Book One, Chapter Seventeen of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book One, The Cup and the Lip, Chapter Seventeen, A Dismal Swamp. And now, in the blooming summer days. Behold Mr. and Mrs. Boffin, established in the eminently aristocratic family mansion, and behold all manner of crawling, creeping, fluttering, and buzzing creatures, attracted by the gold dust of the golden dustman. Foremost among those leaving cards at the eminently aristocratic door, before it is quite painted, are the veneerings, out of breath, one might imagine, from the impetuosity of their rush to the eminently aristocratic steps. One copper-plate Mrs. Veneering, two copper-plate Mr. Veneerings, and a connubial copper-plate Mr. and Mrs. Veneering, requesting the honour of Mr. and Mrs. Boffin's company at dinner with the utmost analytical solemnities. The enchanting Lady Tippins leaves a card. Twemlow leaves cards. A tall, custard-coloured phaeton, tooling up in a solemn manner, leaves four cards, to wit, a couple of Mr. Podsnaps, a Mrs. Podsnap, and a Miss Podsnap. All the world and his wife and daughter leave cards. Sometimes the world's wife has so many daughters that her card reads rather like a miscellaneous lot at an auction, comprising Mrs. Tapkins, Miss Tapkins, Miss Frederica Tapkins, Miss Antonina Tapkins, Miss Malvina Tapkins, and Miss Euphemia Tapkins. At the same time, the same lady leaves the card of Mrs. Henry George Alfred Swashel, Knee Tapkins. Also a card, Mrs. Tapkins at home, Wednesdays, Music, Portland Place. Miss Bella Wilfer becomes an inmate, for an indefinite period, of the eminently aristocratic dwelling. Mrs. Boffin bears Miss Bella away to her milliners and dressmakers, and she gets beautifully dressed. The veneerings find with swift remorse that they have omitted to invite Miss Bella Wilfer. One Mrs. Veneering, and one Mr. and Mrs. Veneering, requesting that additional honour, instantly do penance in white cardboard on the hall-table. Mrs. Tapkins likewise discovers her omission, and with promptitude repairs it. For herself, for Miss Tapkins, for Miss Frederica Tapkins, for Miss Antonina Tapkins, for Miss Malvina Tapkins, and for Miss Euphemia Tapkins. Likewise for Mrs. Henry George Alfred Swashel Knee Tapkins. Likewise for Mrs. Tapkins at home, Wednesdays, Music, Portland Place. Tradesmen's books hunger, and tradesmen's mouths water, for the gold dust of the golden dustman. As Mrs. Boffin and Miss Wilfer drive out, or as Mr. Boffin walks out at his jog-trot pace, the fishmonger pulls off his hat with an air of reverence founded on conviction. His men cleanse their fingers on their woollen aprons before presuming to touch their foreheads to Mr. Boffin or Lady. The gaping salmon and the golden mullet lying on the slab seem to turn up their eyes sideways, as they would turn up their hands, if they had any, in worshipping admiration. The butcher, though a portly and a prosperous man, doesn't know what to do with himself. So anxious is he to express humility when discovered by the passing Boffins taking the air in a mutton-grove. Presents are made to the boffin servants, and bland strangers with business cards meeting said servants in the street, offer hypothetical corruption, as 
"'Supposing I was to be favoured with an order from Mr. Boffin, my dear friend, it would be worth my while to do a certain thing that I hope might not prove wholly disagreeable to your feelings.' But no one knows so well as the secretary, who opens and reads the letters, what a set is made at the man marked by a stroke of notoriety. Oh, the varieties of dust for ocular use, offered in exchange for the gold dust of the golden dustman. Fifty-seven churches to be erected, with half-crowns. Forty-two parsonage-houses to be repaired with shillings. Seven-and-twenty organs to be built with halfpence. Twelve hundred children to be brought up on postage-stamps. Not that a half-a-crown, shilling, halfpenny, or postage-stamp would be particularly acceptable from Mr. Boffin, but that it is so obvious he is the man to make up the deficiency. And then the charities, my Christian brother, and mostly in difficulties, yet mostly lavish, too, in the expensive articles of print and paper, large, fat, private, double-letter sealed with a ducal coronet, Nicodemus Boffin, Esquire, my dear sir, having consented to preside at the forthcoming annual dinner of the family party fund, and feeling deeply impressed with the immense usefulness of that noble institution, and the great importance of its being supported by a list of stewards, that shall prove to the public the interest taken in it by popular and distinguished men. I have undertaken to ask you to become a steward on that occasion. Soliciting your favourable reply before the fourteenth instant. I am, my dear sir, your faithful servant, Linseed. P.S. The steward's fee is limited to three guineas. Friendly this, on the part of the Duke of Linseed, and thoughtful in the postscript. Only lithographed by the hundred, and presenting but a pale individuality of an address to Nicodemus Boffin, Esquire, in quite another hand. It takes two noble earls, and a viscount, combined, to inform Nicodemus Boffin, Esquire, in an equally flattering manner, that an estimable lady in the west of England has offered to present a purse containing twenty pounds to the Society for Granting Annuities to Unassuming Members of the Middle Classes, if twenty individuals will previously present purses of one hundred pounds each. And those benevolent noblemen, very kindly point out, that if Nicodemus Boffin Esquire should wish to present two or more purses, it will not be inconsistent with the design of the estimable lady in the west of England, provided each purse be coupled with the name of some member of his honoured and respected family. These are the corporate beggars, but there are, besides, the individual beggars, and how does the heart of the secretary fail him when he has to cope with them? and they must be coped with to some extent, because they all enclose documents, they call their scraps documents, but they are, as to papers deserving the name, what minced veal is to a calf, the non-return of which would be their ruin. That is to say, they are utterly ruined now, but they would be more utterly ruined then. Among these correspondents are several daughters of general officers, long accustomed to every luxury of life, except spelling, who little thought, when their gallant fathers waged war in the peninsula, that they would ever have to appeal to those whom Providence, in its inscrutable wisdom, has blessed with untold gold, and from among whom they select the name of Nicodemus Boffin Esquire, for a maiden effort in this wise understanding that he has such a heart as never was. The secretary learns, too, that confidence between man and wife would seem to obtain but rarely when virtue is in distress 
so numerous are the wives who take up their pens to ask Mr. Boffin for money without the knowledge of their devoted husbands, who would never permit it, while, on the other hand, so numerous are the husbands who take up their pens to ask Mr. Boffin for money without the knowledge of their devoted wives, who would instantly go out of their senses if they had the least suspicion of the circumstance. There are the inspired beggars, too. These were sitting only yesterday evening, musing over a fragment of candle which must soon go out and leave them in the dark for the rest of their nights, when surely some angel whispered the name of Nicodemus Boffin, Esquire, to their souls, imparting rays of hope, nay, confidence, to which they had long been strangers. Akin to these are the suggestively befriended beggars. They were partaking of a cold potato and water, by the flickering and gloomy light of a lucifer match, in their lodgings, rent considerably in arrear, and heartless landlady threatening expulsion like a dog into the streets, when a gifted friend, happening to look in, said, Write immediately to Nicodemus Boffin, Esquire, and would take no denial. There are the nobly independent beggars, too. These, in the days of their abundance, ever regarded gold as dross and have not yet got over that only impediment, in the way of their amassing wealth. But they want no dross from Nicodemus Boffin, Esquire. No, Mr. Boffin, the world may term it pride, paltry pride if you will, but they wouldn't take it if you offered it. Alone, sir, for fourteen weeks to the day, interest calculated at the rate of five per cent per annum, to be bestowed upon any charitable institution you may name, is all they want of you and if you have the meanness to refuse it, count on being despised by these great spirits. There are the beggars of punctual business habits, too. These will make an end of themselves, at a quarter to one p.m. on Tuesday, if no post-office order is in the interim received from Nicodemus Boffin, Esquire. Arriving after a quarter to one p.m. on Tuesday, it need not be sent, as they will then, having made an exact memorandum of the heartless circumstances, be cold in death. There are the beggars on horseback, too, in another sense from the sense of the proverb. These are mounted and ready to start on the highway to affluence. The goal is before them, the road is in the best condition, their spurs are on, the steed is willing, but at the last moment, for want of some special thing, a clock, a violin, an astronomical telescope, an electrifying machine, they must dismount for ever, unless they receive its equivalent in money from Nicodemus Boffin, Esquire. Less given to detail are the beggars who make sporting ventures. These, usually to be addressed in reply under initials at a country post-office, inquire in feminine hands, dare one who cannot disclose herself, to Nicodemus Boffin, Esquire, but whose name might startle him were it revealed, solicit the immediate advance of two hundred pounds from unexpected riches exercising their noblest privilege in the trust of a common humanity. In such a dismal swamp does the new house stand, and through it does the secretary daily struggle breast-high, not to mention all the people alive who have made inventions that won't act, and all the jobbers who job in all the jobberies jobbed, though these may be regarded as the alligators of the dismal swamp and are always lying by to drag the golden dustman under. But the old house, there are no designs against the golden dustman there. There are no fish of the shark tribe in the bower waters. Perhaps not. Still, Wegg is established there, and would seem, judged by his secret proceedings, to cherish a notion of making a discovery. 
For when a man with a wooden leg lies prone on his stomach to peep under bedsteads, and hops up ladders like some extinct bird to survey the tops of presses and cupboards, and provides himself an iron rod which he is always poking and prodding into dust-mounds, the probability is that he expects to find something. End of Book One Chapter Seventeen